Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. Recently, a really impressive physician came and gave a presentation to my section on gender equity in medicine. And Dr. Nancy Spector was thankfully willing to come on the podcast and discuss that exact issue. She is a professor of pediatrics and the associate dean for faculty development at Drexel University College of Medicine. She is also the executive director of the Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine program, which specifically aims to place women into high-level academic positions within medicine. I asked her to give us an idea of the scope of the gender equity problem within medicine, give us a little bit of an idea of what she does to try to address this issue, which includes an overview of the ELAM program, and then I asked her to specifically give me some tips for how I can start to address this issue in my own work. Hello, I am Dr. Nancy Spector. I'm a professor of pediatrics and the associate dean of faculty development at Drexel University College of Medicine. I also hold dual roles in that I am the executive director of executive leadership in academic medicine or the ELAM program. And I'm proud to say that I'm also a founding member of Times Up Healthcare. And I'm really happy to be here to speak to you today. And Dr. Spector and I met just a couple of months ago when she came to talk at my institution about some of what we're going to talk about today. Nancy, I'm wondering if we can initially start with why do you do what you do? Is there a gender equity problem in medicine and how do we know that it exists and and what was your introduction to this? Oh, sure. That's a great question. I've had a a long journey of exploring different aspects of academic medicine in my career. And when I started out in medicine, I really thought I would be a private practitioner. And I was inspired by my first inpatient floor attending who uh, recognized potential in me to contribute to academic medicine. And that was Dr. Daniel Shidlow, who was turned out to be my mentor and sponsor throughout my entire career and influenced quite a bit my abilities to take on new and interesting challenges. And I started out as a medical educator. And at my mid-career point, I was selected to be a fellow, actually, at the ELAM program that I now lead. And that time was transformative. In that period of time, I did learn tremendous amounts about the gender equity issues in the leadership of our academic healthcare systems. I was really inspired by the people who were doing the excellent work of helping women gain leadership skills, increase visibility, be facile at strategic career planning. It was very inspiring as well as to work with women, to be in a program with only women, 54 women, now 60, and to develop a network that I had never experienced before, not only with the women in the class, but with all the alumni of ELAM. And it's a very, very powerful network. Yes, unfortunately, we still have a tremendous issue around gender equity in in our academic healthcare systems. And that exists both on the medical school side as well as on the hospital system side. And it took us 50 years to get to 29 deans that are women in the country in our medical schools, a little over 150 medical schools. So we still have and hover around 20% of our deans are women in medical schools. I think we need to get to a critical mass, which I define as typically over 30% before we're really going to see fundamental change in how we're structured. But we do have quite a bit of work to do. 
So I want to frame the majority of the discussion today around a paper that you were an author on in 2019 uh, in pediatrics in November. And that paper was titled Women in Pediatrics, Progress Barriers and Opportunities for Equity, Diversity and Inclusion. And I'm wondering if you can maybe give us an overview of the the scope of the article and, and what led to you writing that. Oh, sure. There's an interesting story behind that in that prior to writing this paper, Dr. Julie Silver had led an effort to look, she's been really looking carefully at the structures, not only of our institutions, but also our professional societies and our journals, um, which are sponsored by our professional societies. And she's been looking at gender equity parity at the editorial board level, as well as in different aspects of the review process and in authorship. And she uh, led an article looking at first and last authors in the four highest impact pediatric journals, which not surprisingly, there was not parity in the number of women and men who author commentaries, which are invited pieces. So women were less likely to be first and less likely to be senior authors in the four highest pediatric journals. And she chose pediatrics because there are a predominance of women in the field. That article, which was, I was also a part of that work, was published in JAMA Open and caused quite a bit of stir at the pediatric editorial board levels of those four journals. And after that article, we took the opportunity to speak to Dr. Lewis first, who is the editor of the journal Pediatrics. And he thought it would be very interesting for us to write a special article about equity in our entire field. So we took a very broad look across our field, as well as the seven Federation of Pediatric Organizations, FOPO organizations, looking at the equity issue. He was very interested because he also recognizes that, you know, we have, again, um, women compose the majority of pediatricians in the United States, and we really should be leading in the country in showing that we have equity or even an over majority of women in leadership roles, not only in institutions, but also in our professional societies. And so that's really how that work came to be. It was that the entirety of the process took about six months. It was pretty much a labor of love, a lot of of hard work, a lot of great input from the pediatrics editorial board along the way. So that actually leads into my next question. Pediatrics, our specialty is majority women. So how is it even possible that our specialty is is struggling with gender equity? That's a great question. <laughs> you know, it, it's a fascinating question, actually. So I think women are 72% of active pediatricians and 63% of pediatric residents and fellows. So we really are, uh, women are a majority, but we continue to face challenges that are occurring in every part of medicine. So there's still issues around implicit bias, gender stereotypes, discrimination. There's a very interesting phenomenon that happens with leaders with psychological associations of leadership styles. So, and this is in our field as well. And I love to talk about it because it's a fascinating piece of this. So 
there's agentic leadership style and communal leadership style. Agentic is typically associated with men, very forceful, straight, forward, forthright, assertive decision makers. When women have those qualities, they're perceived as unlikable, actually a lot of unlikability. The other style, communal, is collaborative, helpful, all the things, characteristics often, team building that are associated with women. And the interesting piece of that is if women are overly communal in their leadership styles, they're looked at as not strong leaders. So women are kind of in a double bind. If they're agentic, there's a negative issue. And if they're communal, there's a negative issue. So women often struggle to find the right kind of balance there. In reality, men and women should flex between agentic and communal leadership styles. So we have a lot of work to do to kind of get us to have the conversations around the likability piece and, and that type of thing and not valuing different leadership styles. Nancy, are you actually suggesting that I might have to adjust my style based on the needs of the people around me? I think that is definitely <laughs> a consideration for all of us. <laughs> Absolutely. And also to be more open to different leadership styles and not judgmental and telling a story about people. We tell a lot, we make a lot of assumptions about people. And we tell a lot of stories based on what we see on the outside. I've had many conversations, interestingly, during search processes and even just in working groups where if a woman is very agentic, people will sometimes say, oh, she seems angry or boy, you know, she's really tough to work with. And then we'll have a conversation and I'll say, do you really think that she's angry or do you think she has an agentic style? And so we have that, you know, deeper conversation and it kind of opens your eyes to how you're influenced by some of these factors. Going back to just a little bit of the scope of the problem, is there a difference in the disparity in leadership positions depending on the level that you get? Does it change as you get further up the authority ladder? Yes, it really, really does. And the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, follows the data very closely at the professorial rank level, at the department chair and dean's levels. And um, we follow along with them quite closely. In particular, I'm always interested in the number of, of women deans in the country because that's one of the mission goals of ELAM is to create equity at the highest level of leadership. In academic pediatrics, only 37% of the full professors are women and only 27% of chairs in pediatrics are women. And that is from data from December 31st, 2019 at the AAMC faculty roster. Women are about 34% of physicians overall, so across all fields. And there's this really interesting phenomenon that happens in the dean's office and that at assistant dean level, 46% of the assistant deans are women. Then the next level associate deans, 39% of them are women. The senior associate dean level, 33% women. And at the dean's level, 18% to 20%, depending on the day, are interim or permanent deans are women. And it's this very interesting phenomenon. A couple things factor in here. At the assistant dean level and associate dean level, many of the dean's positions are the caretaking kind of 
dean's position. So my own role, for instance, faculty development, diversity, equity, inclusion, the dean of women. At the more higher levels, they tend to have more power. They tend to be, you know, the dean of finance, the dean of research, those types of things. So Partly um, women, I've had a lot of interesting discussions recently with women across the country about how they really enjoy that type of work. I love what I do. But what happens is the power is with the money. It flows with the money. So if it's in research or, you know, other funding sources and the dean of finance, et cetera, those roles are more typically held by men. And then, of course, the top role, the dean's role, has quite a bit of power. And so we need to think very strategically, one, about how we value the work everybody does and how that influences our selection of leaders. And also really working strategically with women to position them to be able to advance to the highest levels of leadership. So that's what ELAM really strives to do, work with women to do that. So I want to talk about a couple of maybe specific reasons for why this gap exists that I have heard. And, and if, you know, I'm I'm asking these questions knowing what I think your response will be. But what about the justification that maybe there aren't enough qualified women or there aren't enough women in the pipeline? So how can they be deans if they aren't there? That's right. That's a commonly asked question. That pipeline is is really completely full with qualified women. The problem is not that they're not there. The problem is that they're often not supported in the process, sponsored to advance, given the skills and the platform to advance to the leadership positions. Women, by the way, and men work their networks differently. Women tend to underinvest in social capital, and therefore they often miss opportunity to advance. Also, a lot of assumptions are made that a woman will or will not take a position I read a recent article from November in Harvard Business Review this week that there was an example in the business world where a woman came forward because she was looked over for a position that she really wanted. And the reason the senior person didn't give it to her or even ask her about it was because she was pregnant at the time. And he had just assumed she wouldn't take it. So that type of assumption is often made. And so we have to change the way we sponsor people, ensure that we have fair and equitable and open and transparent selection processes for leadership positions. And all of that takes a lot of work, a lot of process, and a lot of infrastructure change. Not just assuming that I know what's best for somebody else or what they would want is sometimes a really hard thing for me. So that that point hits home that you should not limit somebody else's opportunities based on what you think they might or might not want. Exactly. What about the the family or lifestyle desires as a justification that maybe there's just something different about what women physicians want from a full-time versus part-time status or a how much time or stress or, or energy or sort of any of the other issues that might lead to an, an intentional decision to not seek those positions? Yeah, that's another very important thing to think about. Uh, again, in that article I referred to, I think her name is Hira Ali. She wrote it in November... 2019 in Harvard Business Review. She has this quote, women across the world are suffering from time poverty. I thought that was an interesting way to frame things. We know that women generally, not always, do much more of the home 
the homework, meaning <laughs> work of the home, than men do. In a recent study by Dr. Amy Starmer and colleagues at the American Academy of Pediatrics that was published also in the fall in pediatrics, they noted that through a, a large survey that they do periodically, that women pediatricians generally do eight hours a week more than men do in household chores. And so there is definitely a disparity there. And so I think many women struggle with that. I think because of that factor, there are a couple things we should do. First of all, we should have really family-friendly policies in place in all of our institutions. We should encourage men to take family leave and other things that women do to normalize things. And I think we need to think about ways to encourage flexibility in our work environments so that people can fulfill all the roles that they need to. And those roles at home are not just childcare, they're also elder care. You know, they could be caring for another ill family member or lots of other stresses. So um, I think we need to be very supportive, actually. We should be as healthy as a group as we try to make our patients, right? Yeah, uh, good luck with that. <laughs> Physicians are really bad at taking care of themselves. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> so a couple of other things I wanted to ask specifically about. Is there a gap within our specialty and within medicine as a whole in compensation? And, and if so, is there some other factor that explains it other than gender? Yeah, uh, there is. There's, there continues to be. In the, in the article that we wrote for pediatrics, we reported on a 20 to 25 percent pay gap for women in pediatrics. And this was data that we cited from Medscape and Doximity that used full-time salary equivalents. So these discrepancies can't be explained by part-time, which is often noted as the issue. So I, I'm very concerned about the pay equity issue. There's a concern and the fact that women don't ask. In fact, Sarah Lashever has written with her colleague, Linda Babcock, two books, Women Don't Ask and Women Ask For It. And they note that there's a, a case study in there that if a woman doesn't negotiate day one for their first salary, that over time, over their course of career, there could be a gap of a million dollars at the end of a career, a, a woman versus a man. So the negotiation piece, I think, is a, a factor. That's a really big skill component of ELAM, as well as the early and mid-career programs at the AAMC for women, is to teach negotiation skills. And uh, women often do better when they're negotiating for somebody else. But we have to, first of all, <laughs> we have to have transparency of pay, I think, in our organizations. I know that's not an easy thing to do. And when you find that there is a disparity, it has to be fixed. So I know there is a definite concern for leaders of needing to do that, but we need to do that. I think men and women as bosses need to ensure that people do advocate for themselves. So I think there's a lot we can do in our infrastructure to mitigate the problems or to eliminate them. That's our goal is to eliminate pay gap issues for sure. Let's move into that then. And, let, you know, we've discussed the scope of the problem. Any thoughts on how to go about fixing this? And, and maybe you can start by giving us some more information on, on what ELAM is and what it does and, and some of the strategies that you use in your ELAM cohorts. Sure, absolutely. ELAM, Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine, is now in its 
25th year. So we are going to celebrate our 25th anniversary, May 1st, 2020 in Philadelphia. We're very excited about that. We have 1,084 graduates of our program. ELAM is a year-long part-time fellowship program for women at mid-career. They are women who are very well established in their scholarship, have a leadership position, and are noted by the leaders in their institutions to be someone who is really going to advance to the highest levels of leadership. And each fellow who comes to ELAM is actually supported by their own dean, so nominated by their dean. We look at their applications, by the way, very strategically, because we want to make sure that there is an opportunity for them to advance in their organization and that they're going to be supported in their path through ELAM and beyond. ELAM has several different curricular threads. So it's a year-long program. We have three weeks where we meet in person and then do work in between in small groups. We do strategic career planning, resource allocation, we have a finance thread, and strategic career planning. So we cover a lot of different things, as well as personal and professional development. Um, we have a strong focus on finance because we we are a business. Medicine is a business. And even though the majority of us didn't go into medicine because it's a business, we need to know our business to be able to succeed and make sure our institutions succeed. Again, as I noted, we do quite a bit in negotiation conflict resolution and those types of skills, as well as I mentioned, strategic career planning. And you had another part of that question. Oh, infrastructure. Like what can we do to make yeah, change? Yeah, sort of yeah. so that, you know, this training is is one thing, but are there other things for the listeners to think about within their own organizations or within themselves for for change? Sure. That's a great way to think about it. I, I think about things from the individual standpoint the leader standpoint, the institution standpoint, the professional society standpoint. So there are strategies we can, we should be doing across all those pieces simultaneously. In fact, a great resource for people is the Be Ethical campaign. This is uh, work led, again, by Dr. Julie Silver at Harvard. It emanates from a group called Proud promoting and respecting our women doctors. And it's a very complete white paper that articulates the issues from all those standpoints, individual, leader, institution, professional, society, journals, and articulates issues, but also provides ideas, resources, et cetera. Also related to that, you may have seen that the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, just last week launched a, a gender equity initiative. And as part of that initiative, they are trying to raise awareness of what the issues are. And they're going to create the Gender Equity Lab, which is going to be an opportunity for people to share best practices over time. I had not heard about that. That's fantastic. Yeah, it is great. It just launched last week and supported by several of the leaders in in the AAMC. So we're all very excited to hear that as well. At the individual level, the young women ask me this all the time. Why do I have to change or why do I have to act dif- differently or why do I have to get all these skills? And my answer generally is, first of all, I think everybody should have leadership training. I think that helps 
us all grow. I think we need to think about different people's perspectives. But the fact of the matter is that as we're changing the infrastructure to support and to be more open to issues, people still need to do things to be able to advocate for themselves at the same time. So some of those skills include the things I've mentioned already, but also things like graceful self-promotion, advocating for yourself. Having said that, for men, I think this is an interesting area that many people across the country are just starting to think about is what training should men have? How can men be supported to support women? There have been several recent articles that have come out on allies, basically. And I have some thoughts around that, some suggestions, including, first of all, just being very, for men, being very aware of the dynamic that's going on in a room and amplifying the voices of women. I can't tell you, I've never been in a speaking engagement with a a group of women where I haven't said, has this ever happened to you? You're sitting around a conference room table at a meeting and you share an idea and it kind of, nobody sort of picks up on it. And then two people later, a man says exactly the same thing and is given credit for that work happens all the time, happens at the highest levels of leadership to the most amazing leaders, women leaders. So for men to be listening, active listening and ensuring appropriate credit and amplifying the voices of women. Hira Ali, another author in the Harvard Business Review, just commented on a term that I really liked, micro-sponsor. So we think about sponsorship in a big way, but Doing those little things as a micro-sponsor, I think, is a a great, great strategy. Men can often call out sexism, discrimination, a lot easier than men. I was recently at a visiting professorship where several women who were pretty high level in the medical school were discussing how the higher they go, the more challenging it is in meetings. So having men, and we strategized with them for quite a bit about going back to work with men to be allies in the conference rooms that they are, they sit together in to help them as well. And then another piece is like thinking about networks and thinking about how male and female networks work. And this is not true for all men and women, by the way, but if there are circumstances where there are all men in a certain place, for instance, we, I was talking with a, a group of surgeons recently, women surgeons who say, you know, all these conversations and networking is occurring in the locker rooms before people change to go to the operating rooms. Well, that puts women immediately at a disadvantage, right? They're not going to be in those those conversations. So having men be really thoughtful about how their network is working and what missed opportunities women are having in those situations. Those are just a few on an individual level. On a systemic level, policies and procedures, I think, are really very important, but not just writing them, but making sure they're implemented and then following metrics to make sure that goals are being achieved is really, really important. And a really, really important one, I think, is um, standardizing search processes for leadership positions. And the gold standards include things like careful selection of the committee, the search committee for leadership positions, ensuring that the committee has implicit bias training, ensuring there's a diversity champion at the table, de-identifying CVs in the first round of selection, ensuring there are two women in the final four of a 
high-level leader selection because we know that women will not, statistically will not be chosen if they're not two of the four of the final four. So several things like that. And again, I'm excited about this double AMC adventure because, or venture, because we will get to hear more and more about best practices. And that's where we're going to have to finish up part one. Really fantastic interview. And I really appreciate Nancy being there for us. Part two is going to be posted in the next day or two. And instead of focusing on the scope of the gender equity issues within medicine, like we did in part one, part two is going to focus on how to be an appropriate and successful mentor and ally for somebody who has a different gender than you. Nancy has some really good ideas and resources that go into this. And truthfully, those were the questions I was both most excited and afraid to ask Nancy because it brings up a lot of really difficult interpersonal issues. I hope you take the time to take a listen. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head on over to your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a review. It really does help others find the podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.